Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello. I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, my guest is Dr. Lucy Hohn. Lucy is a research academic at AUT University's Human Potential Center in Auckland, New Zealand. British-born, she moved to New Zealand with her husband and young family 16 years ago, following the death of her mother. She says they built a charmed life there living on a headland between two beaches until one public holiday weekend in 2014. Their 12-year-old daughter, Abby, was killed in a tragic road accident alongside Lucy's friend, Sally, and Sally's daughter, Ella. As a professional researcher working in the field of resilience, Lucy acknowledges she was probably better equipped than most to cope with her daughter and friend's sudden loss. In the days and months following the girl's death, Lucy has turned to writing to help her order her thoughts and explore her feelings of loss. Combining academic research and her personal insights, she first wrote a blog, which attracted a large international audience and led to a book deal. Her book, Resilient Grieving, quickly became a bestseller and is now available in the U.S., Lucy's mix of academic knowledge, professional training, personal understanding, and the practical tools she offers for assisting healthy adaptation to loss have made her a world authority on coping with grief. While she says learning to live without Abby is still very much a work in progress, she acknowledges that this work she does to support others to inform them that they do have choices in how they grieve has gone some way to make sense out of the senseless. I have a quote from her before I invite her into this conversation. The, in, the irony of ending up in this position doesn't escape me. I could never have foreseen when I commuted all the way between Christchurch, New Zealand and Philadelphia to study resilience at the University of Pennsylvania that this training would play such an important role in my personal life. In the last few years, I've had to live through several large magnitude earthquakes here in Christchurch and had to come to terms with my dear girl's sudden death. I don't know if I could have done it without having the understanding of the skills of resilience that I had. Now it's my mission to pass those on to others so that we all have greater chances of coping with whatever life throws at us. Welcome, Lucy. Hello, Cheryl. As I was saying before we went on air, I'm I'm in awe that your brain worked so miraculously well to write such an amazing book, right in the throes of beginning grief. Um, you know, I I I was doing things also uh, very passionately, but they were not things that involve my brain. My brain was not working great <laughs> in the beginning of my grief. I could sing, I could garden, I could do many things but not write. So thank you for that because you writing about resiliency at the beginning of your grief has a, has a quite profound impact on me as a reader. 
Thank you, Cheryl. Um, It's a real privilege for me to be here and talk to you and your audience. Um, I think I've wondered about why I wrote and why I wrote so soon after the girl's death. And I think um, it's a funny thing about being a writer, you know, um, first and foremost, I am a writer. And having done quite a lot of research around around bereavement too now, I realized that some people order their thoughts through writing. Mm. Some do it by talking to others. And for me, writing is just, I've been a writer all my life. Um, I was a freelance journalist for the first 20 years of my career. And then I got into academic research. And I just think it is, it is my modus operandi. It is how I, how I think and feel and where I get my flow. That's interesting. And also, I'm just, I'm just thinking this just came to my mind that uh, I've interviewed, of course, quite a few people who have lost children. And um, they have all experienced a very compelling need to write. And it's not that that other it's not that other people don't experience that, but I find it even more compelling. Uh, I don't know if there's any connection. It might just be happenstance, but um, you know, we talk so much to our kids. Yes, uh, and my husband certainly ordered his thoughts through talking. He's a talker, and I'm a writer, so uh-huh. I think we we all handle it differently, don't we? Um, and I did question writing because I knew that would mean. I was going public, which would invite, um, you know, myself, I would do have to do media um, coverage for the book. And that was a really big question for my husband, Trevor, and I, when we agreed, when I signed this book deal, because we knew that that was, we'd been quite private, well, completely private till then. So um, that's what comes with writing. But I, I know for me, there just really wasn't a choice. You know, I had to write. And as mm. a writer, I'm used to sharing my stories, I guess. So, um, so yeah, we, um, we find our path, hey? <laughs> yes. Well, and also, uh, you know, of course, many people um, who feel that compelling need to write basically write memoir. Yeah, uh, not me. Write a <laughs> not me. process. <laughs> But you you included your experience as as demonstrable uh, aspects of how to cultivate resilience, which um, I, I love that combination. I that, think for me, that is my big message. I mean, that's my compulsion as well, is that when Abby died, I became really frustrated with the grief resources that we were given at the time. So I, you know, I was aware of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's model, and that's probably all I knew actually specifically about bereavement. But because I'd had to live through the Christchurch earthquakes, where I'd done a lot of professional work helping people get back on their feet and applying this training I'd had from the University of Pennsylvania to actually see what made a difference to people in ordinary, everyday lives. Um, So because I'd had that experience, I was really frustrated by the passive nature of those grief resources. You know, it seemed to me that we were told that grief is as individual as your fingerprint and time will heal and you're going to go through anger and denial and depression. And I remember thinking, we had no 
control over her dying. I desperately want to exert all the control I possibly can in how we respond to that death. And so for me, because I had these tools at my disposal, you know, I, I had that tool belt on, I, I guess that's where I became really curious was to see, okay, so I know these tools were effective in the post-quake environment. Mm. Really, how good are they to me now? You know, when they're pitted against this ultimate obstacle of child bereavement, are they um, useless? You know, I went in with a really open mind just to test their effectiveness. And so I guess that's where the book came from. I just became fascinated to see and um, and thrilled kind of to see that they were useful. They really were making a difference to me. So then you have to share that with others, don't you? <laughs> yes, it always leads there eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, I, it was interesting that that to me that you were talking about resilience does do the lessons apply to grief because I take a such a broad view of grief I can't imagine any reason to need resilience that doesn't involve a loss well that's true I mean actually one of the things we say about resilience is that um it has four uses so it helps us overcome adversity um in childhood you know whether it's emotional or physical neglect. Resilience also helps us deal with those everyday niggles that we have, the, you know, the somebody <laughs> stealing your parking space and the printer not working, all those things. Yes, you need to be yes, resilient yes. to cope with those. And then resilience obviously steps up when we are really dealing with the big events of our life. And whether that's redundancy or divorce or um, bereavement, it's critical then. So those three are, um, are reactive uses of resilience. But we also know that resilience is about, there's a fourth use, and that it enables us to reach out and learn new things and talk to new people and take on different challenges, you know, to reach out of our comfort zone um, in our lives. And so it is actually more than just tackling loss. Um, mm. But it really struck me that the bereavement literature hadn't, bereavement psychologists um, and academics hadn't really picked up on this large body of knowledge that gave us the tools and the theories to help us grieve. So um, yes. that's really what my work's been about, is creating this nexus between bereavement and well-being science, which is the field I operate in. Well, you know, the first chapter of your book is called The End of the World as We Know It, which mm. I, I really resonate with. And in that condition, people do get kind of desperate to try things. Mm. And so I, I find that a lot of people in grief do actually develop resilience because they're willing to sort of try things out and see if they I work. Agree more. Um, so, so you sort of have uh, your you you sort of applied what you knew, but I do find people, um, and this would apply to me too, um, find their resiliency in those times sometimes as well. Um, I wonder if you'd read a bit from your book because it it kind of 
uh, speaks to this, the beginning of this, which is more a sort of dive into not, not knowing what to do, that out of which you started to um, use what you knew. Absolutely. I'd love to um, share some of my book with you, Cheryl. Um, so this is just an extract, as you say, from the chapter two, in fact. In the immediate aftermath of the girls' deaths, Trevor and I were very clear that there were no rules we had to follow. As Thomas A. Edison is said to have remarked, there are no rules here, we're trying to accomplish something. When that something is as fundamental as survival, life's normal regulations don't apply. You're in the driver's seat. You're the one who counts, the one who has to survive. You have carte blanche to do whatever it takes for you to get through the first few days and weeks. Sleep all you want, do what you want, feel what you want. No one can tell you how to behave or act. Even in the first few hours and days after Abby's death, it struck me how important it was that we were accountable only to ourselves. Being a bereaved parent is so extreme, it gives you the right to call the shots. With each task we faced, I'd ask myself, is this likely to help us get through this or make things worse? When deciding, when trying to decide whether we wanted to go to the court to see the driver's trial, we considered whether being there would help our grieving in the long run, because we'll feel we pursued justice, or whether sitting in court, looking at him, hearing him questioned and reliving those what-if moments would make the grieving process harder now and in the future. Viewing our thoughts and actions in this way, asking, is this helping or harming, is a central tenet of cognitive behavioural therapy and something I'd first come across during my resilience lectures at the University of Pennsylvania. Now I find it a much more useful yardstick by which to evaluate the world than relying on social conventions. While our attendance in court was expected, it wasn't what we needed. Being there would harm, not help me. I, I really like that yardstick. I, I don't think I had those exact words, but what it made me think about is, uh, of course, my transformative loss experience is quite different in the sense that it was coming for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, long, long, long illness, very right. different. Um, but what I feel I was developing during that time was the ability to do what was right for me. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And, and so uh, that really helped me a great deal because I don't think that was quite a skill that I had uh, before her illness. And, and to trust that you would find your way. That, to trust that I would find my way and that the most important thing was for me to take care of myself. Yeah, and uh, you know, absolutely. I, mm. I had dependent children. I had a two and a half year old and a fourteen year old at that time, mm. but I mm. did feel strongly that if I took care of myself, I would take fine care of them. Yeah, absolutely. And I know absolutely. I mean, what you're describing is having that survival mission, having a sense that you know you had to take, do everything you 
required to survive. And and we certainly know that from the resilience research, that having a sense of survival, um, you know, really thinking, okay, this is the task, I'm going to take it on, is um, very, very helpful in those circumstances. Yes. And what I find with clients, because I'm a grief counselor, is that people know what they need, but they don't always trust what they need. Uh, A lot of what I find I end up doing is saying, that's just right. Go ahead and do that. You know, Mm. um, things Mm. that they've come up with themselves that are quite brilliant, but they don't quite know that they're Mm. they're right. And and certainly we know that, that this kind of resilience just requires very ordinary processes. And Marston, who is one of the um, foremost researchers in the field, calls it ordinary magic. And I love that phrase. That's beautiful. That's what you're describing, isn't it? Yes, yes. That you know, they'll say, "I don't have this weird feeling. I should do blank. You know, whatever the mm-hmm. blank is, mm-hmm. and it's perfect. I, mm-hmm. I can see how perfect it is, given who mm-hmm. they are." Mm-hmm. Let's take our break and come back to that. And listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. Please reach out to me and let me know what you what you connect with with the show and and what you'd like to hear more of too and to find lucy hone you can go to onewildandpreciouslife.com with the numeral one be back soon become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america your health where you think it should be if you're like most people the answer is probably not where can you get the answers you need to get on the right track the answers start on occupy health each week host dr susan downs and her guest experts will answer your questions as well as prepare you for questions you'll want to ask your health provider you'll want to plan for your optimal health with occupy health listen fridays at 11 a.m pacific time 2 p.m eastern time on voice america health and wellness what causes us to be sick We're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses. We're talking about your body and health. Listen for the healing whisper of Return to Peace. Each week, host Dr. Marianne Chase shows you how to listen to your heart to identify poor health, stress, and disease. You'll learn how to heal energetically and spiritually as well as physically. It's time to depend less on the drugs and more on the heart. The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Lucy Hone. The death of her daughter 
The mother and daughter who were their friends led her to apply her knowledge of resilience to her process of grieving and her thoughts about grieving. Um, And we were talking before the break, Lucy, about how um, people have a sense what will serve them or what will help them. Uh, mm-hmm. that that sentence you're saying, will this help me or hurt me? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet sometimes it's hard for us to trust that. Do you find yeah. that as well? I think people do get confused in their decision-making. I mean, it is such an overwhelming time, isn't it? Particularly those first few days, weeks, and months um, when you're grieving. Yeah. That, and we're exhausted. <laughs> Let's not forget, Cheryl, how utterly <laughs> how physical exhausting. it is. Yes, <laughs> it is so physical, and so um, we're approaching the third anniversary of Abby's death now. And mm. I still go and sleep in the afternoons. I'm sometimes come off a stage somewhere where I'm giving a keynote speech or doing some professional training. And I literally go straight to the hotel room and lie down. I just, I am just still so tired. And that's because of the shock of the event and that we're still trying to order it, you know, order our thoughts and come to terms with and accept that that loss has occurred. It's such an exhausting process. Yes, I've I've heard uh, Dan Siegel, who's a an interpersonal neurobiologist, yeah, uh, talk about. Um, he's a great speaker, and I heard him speak once about how there's actually there are actually cells that um, or something that can be measured that comes out of our bodies and and also the other persons and kind of meet in the middle, so that literally when we lose someone. Um, all of those little cellular connections have been broken. All those physical cellular connections. I think that's such a such an interesting picture in my head. Mm-hmm. And so, in a way, we're, our bodies are are a little broken as well as our hearts. Mm, uh, I think our, our bodies are so broken, aren't they? In yeah. those first, I remember. Um, the grief sweats. I don't think I even wrote about these in my book, but I remember those. That first week, I just could not stop sweating. It was mm-hmm. revolting. And it's just yes. your body in crisis, in shock. And everything hurts. Um, mm. You know, it, it was interesting to me because I felt uh, strangely well in grief, uh, probably because of, you know, all the time that... Mm. Mm. Um, I didn't feel bad for six or eight weeks, but my body did. Mm. Mm. <laughs> you know, my and body that, hurt. <laughs> and and, and I, do people talk to you about that pain in your solar plexus, which I can't really find much information about, but I that smoldering pain right in the very core of you is the most extraordinary um, physical feeling I've ever had. Absolutely, and it and it makes the the expression heartbreak mm. uh, make a different mm. kind of sense. Uh, a lot of the things that we have in our language about loss um, are mm. are descriptions of something physical. I feel. 
Yeah, and and I'm as I think about it now, I'm reminded of sighing as well, and that you know I used to yes. sigh all mm. the time, be like, <sighs> all the time. Um, yeah, no wonder it's exhausting. Absolutely, and you know I'm aware that you were you. Of course, the the loss of your daughter was beyond comprehension. And she is not the only person you lost in that accident. I was so aware that the person you might have gone to to talk about what had happened was also gone. Yes, and um, it's interesting because when you say that, it um, makes me well up. I find it hard to think of Sally, um, my dear friend. And I have often, often thought that she, if she'd stayed alive, we would have grieved our girls who were the dearest friends Mm. we would have had each other to lean on and I am lucky that I have my husband and to do that process with and we are really fortunate because we um when we met I was attracted to his open and honest and emotional nature and it's been that's been really interesting to me to see that that is what has seen us through our time of need. You know, that initial, the things that initially attracted me to him have been the cornerstones of us getting through this together. That's interesting because uh, after my wife died, uh, well, while she was dying, she was still alive. And I said, if I ever love again, it has to be somebody I can face death with. Um, (laughs) and, And her therapist said, well, that's a high... Mark, hi, Mark. (laughs) How are you going to? I think she was kind of saying, "How are you going to test for that?" You know, but yeah, yeah, it's an unusual, it's an unusual unusual relationship prerequisite. (laughs) But um, I felt like it was the only bar at that point, and I think it's beyond. I I think I felt that anyone who could, who I could see myself dying with or helping die. I could also see being emotionally intelligent, um, you know, yeah. that, that, that that would kind of take care of it. It's turned out to be true. I am remarried. <laughs> so, oh, um, so good. Lovely. So, um, go ahead. Um, we had both faced death before, and I wonder how much that is um, has enabled us to weather this grief. Um, my husband lost his father when he was... 13, suddenly to a heart attack, and my mother died when she was 61, around the time of the millennium, I was pregnant with our second son, Paddy, and Mm. she died, Um, in the time that he grew inside me, she died, and um, so we'd both had significant experience of bereavement before, and in some ways, I think that, while, as you say, every death is different, it does prepare you in some way. I think what, it, for me, when people say, uh, oh, you must be good at this grief thing, you know, <laughs> because of what you do and all, I say, no, I'm not any better than anybody else. It's just that I know I have to do it and that I yeah. can do it and that I'll get through it. That's what's different in my Absolutely. And I felt that urge very early on. I remember standing by the um, oven in our kitchen And this voice inside me just urging me to say, you know, you've got to keep going. Do not lose what you have. 
to what you have lost. And, you know, I've got these two beautiful teenage boys um, in my life and I'm, I was driven to survive, to enable them to have as normal a life as possible. Absolutely. I want to move just slightly to the, um, I'm going to have you read this long section on redefining hope. Um, it's it's longer than I usually do on the show, but I, it's it's very beautiful, and it's and I think it's so important. This idea that uh, I've I've had many people who are end of life um, experts of one kind and another um, talk about redefining hope when uh, life is going to end, um, and you're talking about redefining hope when life has ended. You know. Mm. That whole process, and I, th- I think that's so such a useful message for people. Could you share that? Absolutely. I'd love to because I think this story, as you say, is incredibly powerful and has been really useful, this, um, this understanding of hope for me over these last few years. So I will read. As you said, it's, bear with me because it is quite long, but, um, but worth it, I think. Chris Futner is one of the professors a student never forgets. A pediatrician at CHOP, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Futner told us how he uses psychological hope theory in his work in the children's oncology department. I remember wondering what hope could possibly be present in such a place. Then he relayed to us Mason's story. Mason was three months old and had already been in the hospital for two months when Futner met him and his family. Mason had a metabolic disease and his parents had been told a week earlier that it was terminal. Futner recalled the moment when he asked the parents, given what Mason is up against, what are you hoping for? This, at first glance, seems like an absurdly insensitive question. What were they hoping for? For Mason to live, obviously, but they'd just been told that wasn't gonna happen. As far as they were concerned, all hope was gone. But the rest of the story that Futner relayed to us that day gave us, his students, a remarkable and unique insight into the power and nature of hope. Until Futner became involved in Mason's case, the hospital team's goal was to get the baby to put on weight. But after careful coaxing and patient discussion with the parents, this remarkable doctor managed to discover that their greatest remaining hopes for Mason were to stop further testing, take him home, have him baptised, and for him to live what time he had left at home among his family. So that's what they did. Mason went home with his family that day. He was baptised and died peacefully three weeks later. Chris Futner described how inquiring about new hopes palpably changed the mood in the room for those parents and the course of Mason's treatment. He says, we had confirmed the worst news for parents, but left them with hopes to look forward to. Pediatric palliative care is not all sad. There are moments of joy and celebration as to what it means to be alive. This experience had a huge impact on his career, which now sees him work with patients and their families around the notion of hope, even in the direst circumstances. He says, there are so many parents who feel lost because once the big hope was shut down, nobody thinks to nurture their other hopes. In the face of no curative options, 
parents need a new goal to strive for. He now works to ensure that parents at CHOP get the chance to collaborate in the decision-making around their children's outcomes by asking them quite simply, so what are you hoping for now? Answers to this question demonstrate that hope isn't a single entity. Humans don't have just one hope, but a collection of smaller hopes. In the face of even terrible news of something as final as death, other hopes remain or emerge. The process of hoping endures. In the immediate aftermath of the girl's death, my focus quickly became about reducing additional stress and narrowing my priorities and expectations. Setting myself a new goal of surviving, which started with just aiming for mainly functioning, I narrowed the goalposts to accept that any day I got out of bed and went through the motions was an achievement. My goals had shifted overnight, and while it was easy to think that all hope had gone, I did still have other life goals and priorities. Knowing what it was I was aiming for, having a goal, however small, helped me work out which actions to take and changed my definition of success. I'd forgotten about Futner's work at the time, but looking back, I wish someone had explicitly asked me to consider what my new, smaller hopes were. You know, I, my, my wife and my dog uh, are getting certified to um, volunteer do pet therapy she's my dog is is trained as a pet therapist they are volunteering at a place called the george mark um hospice center it's it's all for children wow and um i just i just saw the the person who founded that that center who lost two brothers that's why she did it just did a ted talk and talked about uh I think exactly this, that um, that the kids who come there still have hopes for things. She tells a lovely story of a girl who decided to do a lemonade stand and they helped her do a lemonade stand in the Mm. front of the place. And, Mm. you know, very alive Mm. um, uh, until death. You know, yeah. and, um, we have a foundation in New Zealand called Make-A-Wish um, and um, we yeah, give to them and that's for um, terminally ill children to do something that they wish to do. And, you know, as, um, as someone who works with um, illness and, and death, um, there and mostly from my own personal experience, that time when we knew that the end was was here with my wife, that time between when we knew that and when she died uh, was quite a sacred time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know what else, what other word to use. And, and that comes out of being able to, I think, see what could be. Uh, instead yeah. of just yeah. okay, that's that, you know. Um, I think we had a lot of help in seeing, in seeing that and asking those questions. And it sounds as if, even though you didn't remember, you'd learned that it came out in the way you handled things. Mm. And I think um, I like your words about it being a sacred time. I mean, I feel 
that we saw so much misery. And as a mother, I saw so much of what I shouldn't have ever had to see. But I also know that I saw more beauty and love that most people ever see in a lifetime. You know, I will never forget the kindness and the love that people gave to us. Um, it's an incredible, I remember describing it as it's like living out there on the edges of life. And at a time when you've, you've lost at least a, a layer of skin, possibly several, <laughs> so that I, I feel as if things got in differently as well. Uh, when people were loving towards me, I felt so loved. Yeah. So absorbent. Uh, so, so just, uh, you know, it, it uh, washed through me in a way mm-hmm. that we don't always have access to, I feel. In no, there's life. certainly a, a beauty there, isn't there? There really is. We'll come back to that when we're after our second break. And listeners, you can go to my website or the host page. My, my website is weatheringgrief.com with two Gs or the Good Grief host page at Voice America. And you can find Lucy Hone as onewildandpreciouslife.com. Back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your health where you think it should be? If you're like most people, the answer is probably not. Where can you get the answers you need to get on the right track? The answers start on Occupy Health. Each week, host Dr. Susan Downs and her guest experts will answer your questions as well as prepare you for questions you'll want to ask your health provider. You'll want to plan for your optimal health with Occupy Health. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. What causes us to be sick? We're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses. We're talking about your body and health. Listen for the healing whisper of Return to Peace. Each week, host Dr. Marianne Chase shows you how to listen to your heart to identify poor health, stress, and disease. You'll learn how to heal energetically and spiritually, as well as physically. It's time to depend less on the drugs and more on the heart. The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Lucy Hahn, the author of Resilient Grieving, Finding Strength and Embracing Life After a Loss That Changes Everything. And, um, you know, we've been, uh, right before the break, we were, we were kind of talking about 
hope and and how um, figuring out new ways to think about hope when you're in the middle of a big loss uh, makes the time very alive. I guess that's how I'd Mm. say it. Do you have more you'd like to say about that? No, I think you've completely summed that up for me. (laughs) And, uh, you know... I'd like to talk just a little bit um, about what makes it much harder to uh, come at grief this way, I guess. Things such as maybe the biggest thing, uh, not having people to support you. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Mm. To, to me, that is a, a tremendously huge factor. Uh, that people who are very isolated with their grief do do not, it's harder for them to find their resiliency. Are there other Mm. things that you think make it, um, you know, help and hinder, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I think you've completely put your finger on the pulse there that relationships are so fundamental to our capacity for resilience um, that, we have to be able to make them work when we're faced with grief. But for some people, that is really, really hard. You know, it is a very challenging time for relationships. Um, so one of the things I often say to people is you cannot expect your friends and family and colleagues to be mind readers. You have to tell them what you need. But that is easier for some people than others. You know, and I would fully acknowledge that, that I'm um, I'm pretty extrovert and I'm open and I find it quite easy to communicate. Whereas if you're an introverted person, it's much harder to, or it can be much harder to express to others precisely what it is that you need. So um, I think there are things um, that make this process harder. You know, geographical isolation can mm. be an issue. Although yes. nowadays there are such great grief support forums online that I would urge anybody, really just find your people, whether it's the people in the knitting group, the people that you're at college with, the somebody online, um, compassionate friends, you know, somehow we have to find people to share this journey with and all the research points to the importance of that. Also, um, one thing, I work with cancer a lot, which is another kind of loss, um, you know, and, and so I encounter so many times people whose communities don't know how to deal with bad circumstance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's a book I interviewed uh, Emily McDowell recently. She wrote "There Is No Go- No Good Card for This." It's a book on yeah. on how to be empathic, and uh, I'm I'm having my clients just um, you know people they're close to who don't know how to do it just send them the book, you know that kind of yeah. thing, mm-hmm. because it is really hard to train people when you're in the midst of a dire moment you know, a a really significant loss. You just want to get rid of anyone that doesn't know how to help you, uh, I think. Um, And I think that's a very natural process, isn't it? You just think, actually, I cannot be bothered with you right now. Yes, exactly. And then that does have lasting effects. I find people, uh, people's communities, some people, uh, the relationships get closer, others, they get much more distant. It goes one way or the other. 
it seems. Yes, yes. And I think I'm pretty blessed because we live in um, a community that is very family oriented. So people just get it, you know, what it would be to lose a child. And and I, I think that has um, helped us in many ways. I know that, that people don't expect us to get over it in a hurry because they know that they wouldn't get over it themselves. So, um, but and I think not comparing your grief to others is really important too. I write about absolutely. that. Absolutely, absolutely. And then um, before we get out of here, uh, I I really want to talk about something that you talk about in your in your book, and I'll have you read a bit, which is about continuing relationship. You know, this whole closure notion that we used to have in grief work. Uh, it just yeah. it never fit for me whatsoever. I didn't I didn't have any impulse whatsoever to uh, find closure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? I, yeah. I I I felt a strong impulse to change the nature of my relationship with my wife. Mm-hmm. I ha- I yeah. had to. I mean, it wasn't a choice. Right. But the idea that I would close it up was just made me want to really throw up honestly Mm. so um and and you seem to talk about that too could you read that section yes I'd love to you know but I'm just to preface it I didn't know that I somebody had to tell me that that I could continue my relationship with Abby um and a teacher from her schools I said to her one day I don't know who I am any longer I was a mother of three you know doing PhD research I don't know who I am now. And she said to me, you will always be a mother of three. So, you know, to Bridget, I want to thank her for that. Okay, I'll just read you this short piece. Grief is a byproduct of love. Because we loved, so must we grieve when the person we love is no longer physically with us. But the fact that they've gone doesn't mean that we must stop loving them or thinking about them. Coming to terms with this fact, understanding that your love for that person never dies is a major advance in our understanding of grief. In the first year after Abby's death, I missed her physical presence so badly. It took all the time, all that time and some, to get used to her just not being here anymore, to grow accustomed to her not being part of our daily routines, not there to kiss goodnight or to have breakfast with in the morning. No more after-school activities to drive her to, hair to comb, fantasy books to share, shops to browse, boyfriends to discuss. The local swimming pool and netball courts were gone from the routine of our lives. The loss of her physical presence and particularly her friend's constant noise was huge. But as the time passed, I've been forced to get used to that and I guess I have grown to accept it. As much as it sounds me to say it, I no longer expect her to walk in the front door, to hear her steps outside our office, to see her face at the breakfast table, to hang out her laundry. I have now accepted that. My brain has caught up with the harsh reality. Yet I also know that she has not completely gone from my life. She is very much part of me, of the life I lived, the one I live now, the places I inhabit. She is much loved, well-remembered, and frequently talked about. Somehow, Abby Hone is still part of our lives. She's just not physically. She happened. She existed. She was very, very real. I can keep her present in myriad small ways, consciously imagining which skirt she would pick out for me on special occasions, 
wearing a tiny ring that reminds me of her every day, visiting places she loved, catching up with her friends and blasting out her favourite songs and very occasionally snuggling down in her bed to read one of her most treasured books. It's like water in the desert to talk about, uh, for me to talk about continuing relationship, um, which, you know, losing, losing a spouse, um, there's some complexity to that (laughs) being, Mm, being remarried. Um, you know, it, it took some, some work to figure out how that goes, how that, um, yeah, how, what that looks how like. How Joanne like. is mm. integrated into my life uh, mm. while I'm completely uh, 100% mm. faithful and committed to my partner now for, for 20 years. Mm. Um, and it's just one of those incredible things about us as human beings that that is actually possible. That's the most amazing thing about being human is our capacity for love. And we know that, don't we? Because when we have babies, you have your first baby and then the second one comes along and you think, how can I love this one too? But you do and you keep loving more and more. It is the most um, beautiful thing about being human beings is we have this huge um, and infinite capacity for love. And I want to tell you, it does apply to grandchildren too. I have two of them. Oh, and <laughs> and mm. yes, your heart grows for mm. for more. Uh, mm. And you know there are ways in which uh, my relationships with my parents have actually developed quite a bit since they died. Mm. Uh, there's a whole different quality to those relationships uh, that feels much more like um, I, I recognize their full humanness. Mm. This is how I would mm. say. Um, mm. they're, they're much more, more whole people to me, maybe, than when they were sure. being my parents. Uh, yeah. So I find that so, speaking of hope, so hopeful. Comforting, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That those relationships just go on. They are, um, they've etched themselves on us. Oh, I love that way of putting it. They've etched themselves on us. Um, I, I even have the idea that when we love someone, it changes our cellular structure. Mm, mm, quite that, possibly. That we actually are different because of it. Um, yeah. Uh, and that, that goes pretty deep. So we have just scratched the surface of what you have in your book. And um, I find it so helpful because uh, I can imagine that, you know, someone could just skip over parts that that aren't for them in a way but mm. there's so much in it there's got to be something for everybody and I wrote it in that way I'm Cheryl I really wanted you know knowing the adult brain of the grieving I wanted people just to be able to pick it up and read just this section or that section or this you know little column here and there and also to me, grief is a jigsaw puzzle, and I've got my model of resilient grieving is in the back of the book, and that's just pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. And I keep emphasizing to people that these are the things that work for me. You know, try them out for you, see what fits, but we all need to find our own pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, and that, to me, is what resilient grieving is about. And there's another aspect, too, that I'm thinking of that uh, – 
you know, something that worked for me at one moment would would be completely wrong at mm-hmm. another moment. That there's mm-hmm. a very very much a sense of uh, the right thing at a given moment. Yes, uh, and I think also we have to keep refreshing things. So I find myself, you know, feeling good for a while nowadays, and then it and then I slide back into depression and misery. And so then I think, oh, here I go. I've got to go and get all those tools out again. <laughs> you know, it's a complete continued work on. And I think, um, you know, reading and listening to your podcast, those things are so helpful because they just keep enabling us to have new and refreshing our tools it's really helpful it's you know it's a living um loss isn't it exactly because we're we are flow as people mm-hmm. um you know when my wife died I, I made a very spacious life for myself and so i could follow my own little breadcrumbs at will and um I think it's harder when you have to reintegrate with life. Um, you know, things did not stop for either of my parents' de- deaths. Um, in fact, they were in the middle of heating up when my mother was dying. You know, this show started mm-hmm. during that period. I started teaching during that period. And you do get caught up short. If I don't take the time mm-hmm. sometimes yeah. to let it be yeah. the ruler of me, Mm, uh, totally. It, it will it will catch up with me. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I definitely I can dive into work and use it as a really helpful distraction. But I know that I have to oscillate in my grief. You know, you have to approach it sometimes, and then I can withdraw and distract myself. But I have to go back and approach it again. Well, I guess the final word we might say is is follow your own nose here and and expose yourself to things that might work for you absolutely find your own way and be your own experiment is what i would say be your own experiment i like that expression i think that's in your book as well isn't it yeah be your absolutely. own experiment mm. yeah <laughs> absolutely it's on, on all the work i do you know this these are the findings of scientific study but eventually you have to work out if they apply for you too yes i i did a lot of work with stephen levine he would say uh it only works if you use the braille method mm-hmm. feel feel your way along Thanks for being with me today, Lucy. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. For me too, Cheryl, and thank you for you and your listeners. Absolutely. And and you can find Lucy Hone at onewildandpreciouslife.com to find her book and everything else she does. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.